So, Squirrel will say something about it. Yeah, him, so. he will. He will. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you live from Aaron Studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. It's good to have you with us. It is Tuesday, the 28th day of February. It is not a leap year, so this is the final day of February in 2023, which means tomorrow is March 1st. Think on that. March 1st, third month of the year. Shepherd's Conference Month. And for that reason, I will not be here next week. I will not be back here, I believe, until the 15th, 16th. Let me look at the calendar. Hopefully this doesn't mess up my show notes. Pull up the calendar. All right. Yes, I will be back here on the 15th. May or may not have a squirrel chatter on the 14th. I'm scheduled to arrive back home on the 13th, um, but I may be sleeping in, <laughs> just to let you know. So there may be a squirrel chatter on the 14th. That is a slight possibility, but there will certainly be squirrel chatter on the 15th. So I am looking forward to the Shepherd's Conference. Uh, if you're going to be at Shepherd's Conference, let me a note, uh, drop me a note, let me know. Would love to get together with you and say hi. I've already made arrangements to uh, to meet up with some folks already, and uh, so I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be a good time. Hmm. Squirrely blend, uh, Squirrely Joe's house blend, Squirrely blend, Squirrely Joe's house blend this morning in my pot, and I am enjoying it. Actually, it's not in the pot anymore. It's in the cup and in the thermos. So that's the way of that. This is Squirrel Chatter, which is a podcast dedicated to scripture, theology, history, current events, coffee, and whatever else I want to talk about. Uh, we webcast every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain Time on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch. And then the podcast is available wherever you find find podcasts. So your favorite podcatcher should have Squirrel Chatter. If it doesn't, let me know, and I will take care of that. Uh, I'm pretty much everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Google, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, etc. I think I'm even on Amazon's Audible, <laughs> uh, which is not a place I ever go for podcasts. I use Audible all the time. I have tons of ebooks. Especially from back in my days of driving truck, I would listen. I, that was when I first discovered Audible, was back in 2007, 2008, when I was driving truck. And uh, that, was a, that was an interesting time. But that was when I discovered Audible. And, you know, when I came off the road, I never canceled my subscription. So I still get one free credit or one credit a month as part of my membership. And so my audiobook library has grown immensely. And that's one of the things I listen to all the time. Is uh, It's everything from, from fiction to history to theology that I've filled my, my uh, audible library up with. Excuse me for just a moment. Sorry about that. I had a sneeze come in and attack me. That was no good. Uh, at least I felt it before it went off. Quite often with me, sneezes are right there. I don't have any warning at all. But this one, I was like, I'm going to sneeze. I better mute my microphone and at least take down the camera because that's not anything anybody wants to see. All right. Uh, let's see, where was I? Yes, yeah, Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community, christianpodcastcommunity.com. Check it out. Great stuff over there. And so what do we got going today? It is Tuesday. We have prayers from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. And we're resuming our study Bible level Bible study of Deuteronomy. And we're in Deuteronomy 5. We're looking at the Ten Commandments. We introduced it last week. And today we're going to look at the first three commandments. Um, I'm saving the fourth commandment for tomorrow tomorrow. 
Um, because I think the fourth commandment is different from the other nine. And I'll deal with that tomorrow. Now that I've sneezed, my nose is running. Excuse me. Oh, I've been getting over this cold. I don't know why my nose is running. I've been feeling great. Haven't had the stuffy nose and stuff for several days. But who knows? <laughs> um, anyway, we're in Deuteronomy 5. We're looking at the Ten Commandments. We're going to look at the first three today. And uh, so that is our Tuesday program notes. All right, well, let's get started, as is our practice, as should be all of our practice, to begin the day with a prayer of confession. And so we are reading the prayer of confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. And excuse me, now I've got to blow my nose again. Of course there's bad churches. Um, then go find a good one. And if you have to drive to get to it, then it's worth the drive, I would say. You know? So get in your car and go. I mean, how bad do you want it? I mean, how important is the truth to you? All right. Well, let's get back with it. All right. Our prayer of confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now we have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. The reading today is entitled, Satan's Promises, Corrupt Strings Attached. Our verse is Matthew 4, 8. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Dr. MacArthur writes, Satan offered the world's kingdoms to Jesus on his own corrupt terms. God allowed this test to prove that Christ was and is a worthy son, fit to one day inherit the world and rule from his throne. The devil, on the other hand, wanted to prove the son's worthlessness by getting him to prematurely grab the kingdoms God had already promised him. The enemy approaches Christians also with corrupt bargaining chips. Whatever they might want in the realm of business, politics, fame, or anything else, he claims it can be theirs for a reasonable price or trade-off. He says we can be or have whatever we want, just so long as we pursue it according to the world's way, which is also Satan's way. In effect, it's like saying to ourselves, why wait for a heavenly reward when you can cut corners, shade the truth, run ahead of God's schedule, and have what you want now? But when we grab hold of Satan's corrupt strings, we put self first and God last. Instead of seeking God's kingdom first, Matthew 6.33, we act more like Abraham, who sought God's promise of an heir through his impatient, selfish act with Hagar, Genesis 16.1-6. The result of that sin was tragic and heartbreaking and has been to this day. Ask yourself, the world doesn't really know what glory is, and if we had a keener, more realistic sense of God's awesome splendor, we'd see the world's flimsy reflections for what they really are. What seems glorious and glamorous about the world to you? Ask God to help you see it truthfully. All right. And now our prayer for the reading of the Word, which is actually the colic for the second Sunday in Advent. Blessed Lord, who hast caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So I said we are in Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're looking at the Ten Commandments. Last week we looked at Exodus 20 and Exodus 19 and 20, the whole uh, 
events surrounding the giving of the Ten Commandments, um, the smoke on the mountain, the, the voice of God that was heard by the entire nation of Israel. It wasn't just those who were, um, it wasn't just those who were, uh, uh, it wasn't just Moses who went up on the mountain and heard the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were, were uh, given by God to the entire nation before Moses went up on the mountain and received the written tablets. Um, I was reminded yesterday, I was studying this and thinking about it, and uh, I remembered uh, Mel Brooks's History of the World Part Two. Um, funny movie, irreverent, probably not the... I saw it at a time in my life when I was less uh, sensitive to such things. Um, but one of the things that was, he, he has the giving of the Ten Commandments, and it's actually Mel Brooks that's dressed up as Moses. He comes down off the mountain, and he's got three tablets. And so he's telling the nation of Israel that he has brought them these 15, and then he drops one. These 10, these 10 commandments, still funny. Not, of course, what happened, but it's a funny joke. Um, and I, I remembered that, so I found it on YouTube. I shared it on Twitter. So you can go to my Twitter account, find the link to the, the short little video of that, because it's, it's still funny. But that's not what happened. There, there are ten and only ten commandments given by God. This is the, the Decalogue, the ten words, the very important commandments of God that Jesus said is the summary of the law. So the, the, the two tables of the law, the first table, the first four commandments, is thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second table of the law is five through ten, is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, love thy neighbor as thyself. That's the whole law. And when we understand that, we understand that this is still God's moral standard. And it is obligatory on all humanity. It is something that the Christian believer should strive to obey. And it is something that the non-Christian will be condemned for disobeying. And the fact of the matter is, that's why I love Way of the Master, uh, the way uh, Ray Comfort shares the gospel. His, his whole method of sharing the gospel is to go to the law. Because you have to convince people of their sin before you can really make them understand their need for a Savior. And now I think Romans 1, I think everybody in their heart and the conscience, Romans 1 and 2, the, the knowledge of the existence of God and his great might and power and the knowledge of right and wrong, which is innate, it's it's a god it's part of the imago dei it's part of the the image of god that that we all have in ourselves we all have a sense of right and wrong and there've been experiments that have have shown that you know I mean, that people from all sorts of different cultures will react to a video of a bully stealing a a child's pencil or something and they all, oh, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's right. You know it's wrong. And everybody knows it's wrong. So everybody knows they're guilty, but they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. By going to the law and confronting somebody with the law, that will reveal to them their unrighteousness. And that's why it's a, it's a good way to start. All right. Today we're looking at verses 6 through 11. We're looking at the first three commandments. Let me read the passage, and then we'll look at the commandments individually. He said, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. 
You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. So the first commandment, God begins very specifically by identifying himself and then giving the actual commandment. He says, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God makes no, no bones about the fact that he is God, and he is specific about what God he is. Now, he's the only true and living God, but remember that the, the Israelites had come out of the very pluralistic, uh, multiple uh, polytheistic um, Egyptian realm, where you had you know, gods for everything. The God for the you know breakfast on the second Saturday in the month, you know, <laughs> I mean, everybody had these uh, these gods, and uh, there were temples all over Egypt. Now they're beautiful works of art, and I've never been. Uh, Mrs. Squirrel has been. I've seen her pictures, and I've talked to her, and I've talked to people who have been there, and of course I've seen the pictures of the the the, the temples and the statuary. I actually went to. Uh, the Metropolitan Museum in New York that's right there on the east side of, of Central Park. Um, great art museum. I had no desire to go look at all the paintings and stuff, and they have masterpieces in there, but I'm just not a painting guy. What I went there to see were two things. They have one of the best Egyptian collections in the world. They actually have an entire temple built inside the museum that was put there it was when they built the Great Aswan Dam in, in, uh, um, in Egypt that the, uh, the temple was going to flood. And so it actually got disassembled and moved to New York and reassembled inside the, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So you can see the architecture and stuff. And they have a collection. Of, there's mummies. There's artifacts. There's all sorts of stuff at the... Egyptian collection at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Beautiful. That was one reason I went there. The other reason I went there was to see their collection of medieval armor, because I'm I'm big into that. So <laughs> that was that, I didn't I, I had no desire to go see the paintings. <laughs> I didn't want to go see any of that. I wanted to see the Egyptian stuff and the the armory stuff. And we only had a few hours, so we beelined for the collections that we wanted to see. And uh, that was. That was fun. Gosh, that was uh, 15 years ago. Last time I was in New York was 15 years ago. Back when it was city, it was clean, and it was still safe to walk around. Giuliani was mayor. Things were different then. All right, so he starts by identifying himself as the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. He gives them their name, I, his name, I am Yahweh, which is derived from the I am of uh, back in Exodus, you know, when Moses asked at the burning bush, who will I, who do I tell them sent me? And God replies, I am that I am. And Yahweh is a special form of the verb to be. It basically means he is. He is the God who is. And so, you know, so he's basically saying, I am, I am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You are not to worship anybody else. Um, and, and before, it doesn't mean just priority. It's an exclusivity. He says, basically, I don't want to see any other gods being worshipped by you. Yeah. This is the first commandment. And it goes with the first and greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. If you have that kind of devotion towards God, you will not be interested in worshiping false gods. So let's look at this. Spurgeon's Catechism, number 43. What is required in the first commandment? The first commandment requires us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify him accordingly. 
So that is what the what is required by the first commandment. Now I also pulled up the ACNA, and this is actually goes a bit more extensively, the ACNA catechism. Question number 269, what does it mean that the Lord is your God? The answer is, it means that I have faith in the God of the Bible. I have faith that the God of the Bible is the only true God, and that I must entrust myself to him wholly. Now, I have not pulled out all the scripture references to go through them all. We'd be here all week, and I didn't want to do that. This is a study Bible level Bible study. This is not a you know, in-depth Bible study uh, to that degree. But I do want to give them to you. So if you want to write these down, these are the, the scriptural references for that answer. The answer, again, is it means that I have faith that, God, that the God of the Bible is the only true God and that I must entrust himself, entrust myself to him wholly. So it's Exodus 3, 1 through 15, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, Psalm 86, 8 through 13, Mark 12, 29 through 34, and Revelation 15, 3 through 4. Then question 270 in the same catechism. What does it mean to have no other gods? The answer, it means that there should be nothing in my life more important than God and obeying his will. I should worship him only and love, revere, and trust him above all else. You know, I'm using these catechisms um, because they are such a good summary of what the law teaches. They're, they're such a good summary of, of Christian doctrine. Um, I wish I had been catechized as a child. Not something that was really common in the Southern Baptist tradition I was raised in. I wished I'd catechized my child. But again, it was not something I was raised with. It wasn't anything I was aware of. This is something that, that I've really become aware of later in my adult life. The whole concept of family worship and catechism and, and the duties of the father as the head of the household to train up his children. Um, I mean, my parents took me to church. My parents were godly people. There was a great deal of, you know, Bible and faith around our house, but there wasn't an intentional raising up the children at home in the way. And I mean, we were at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. <laughs> we had, you know, Sunday school classes and then the church service. We had, you know, Wednesday night Bible studies. I was in the choir because dad was choir director, all sorts of stuff like that, that we were at church all the time. I was youth group, all of that. But there wasn't a family worship and there wasn't a catechizing. So I would say, you, you parents out there, let me encourage you, get a good catechism and take your children through it so that they memorize these answers. Now, obviously, I'm not good at rote memory. I have a hard time memorizing the answers, but I could still learn from them. And, and uh, so this is, you know, teach your children. Um, that is the responsibility of parents, especially fathers. So the scriptural proofs on question 270 are Psalm 95, Jeremiah 10, 6 through 10, Luke 16, 10 through 15, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. And if I was doing this as a family worship with my children, we would be going and turning to each one of those and looking at them and talking about how they relate to the question and the answer. That's why you, you can, you really only do like one question and answer a week because you're going to talk about it all week. And, you know, if you do that ever after dinner, every night for a week, think about how much your children will grow. Think about how much you'll grow in your faith and your knowledge. All right, question 270. We're still on the first commandment. Why are you tempted to worship other things instead of God? Answer, I am tempted because my sinful heart seeks my own desire above all else and pursues those things which falsely promise to fulfill them. 
The scriptural proofs here are Deuteronomy 29, 16-19, Psalm 10, 2-7, Acts 19, 23-27, and James 4, 1-10. And I will link both of these catechisms that I'm using this morning, the, the Spurgeon's Catechism and the ACNA Catechism, I will link in the show notes so that you can find these. These are available for, for PDF download online. I will, I will link them for you if I remember, which I should. Okay, question 272. How are you tempted to worship other gods? I am tempted to trust in myself, my pleasures, my possessions, my relationships, and my success, wrongly believing that they will bring me happiness, security, and meaning. I am also tempted to believe superstitions and false religious claims and to reject God's call to worship him alone. Oh, that's so true. <laughs> that's so true. The scriptural proofs here are 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8, Psalms 73, 1 through 17, 1 through 17, Matthew 26, 14 through 16, Matthew 27, 1 through 5, Romans 1, 18 through 32. And then this one's a this one's a good one. Question 273. Can you worship and serve God perfectly? Answer, no. Only our Lord Jesus Christ worshipped and served God perfectly. But I can seek to imitate Christ, knowing that my worship and service are acceptable to God through him. And that's an important thing to remember. If we are in Christ and we are seeking to obey God, the fact that our Obedience is imperfect, is, well, it's important, and I won't say it's not overlooked, and it's not something we should strive to correct, but it's something that we should understand we will never be perfect. Not in this life. When we are finally glorified, I, I think we're going to look back and see just how sinful we were, and it's going to astonish us. And I think God in his mercy does not reveal the full extent of our sinfulness to us, those of us who love him, because, because we love him, because we want to obey him, if he revealed the full extent of our sinfulness to us, it would crush us. And so he doesn't. But we need to know we're not perfect. And our good deeds are only acceptable to God through Christ and through our faith in Christ. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And it doesn't matter how many good deeds you do, if you are doing them outside of faith in Christ, they're unacceptable. But if you're doing them, if you're acting in obedience to God to the best of your ability after you've been saved, then you're obedience, imperfect as it is, is deemed acceptable to God. And the, the scriptural support here is 1 Kings 15, 9 through 14, Psalm 53, 1 through 3, Luke 4, 1 through 13, and Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, Hebrews 7, 23 through 28. All right, that's the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now the second commandment. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 8. You shall not make for yourself an idol, any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So again, I want to point out, as I pointed out last week, this is not a repeat of the first commandment. The first commandment is worship the right God. The second commandment 
is worship God rightly. We are not to try to worship God through idols. And, and I pointed out last week that the, the golden calf that the, the Israelites were parading around at the bottom of Mount Sinai while Jesus was up on the, or while Jesus, while Moses was up on the mountain getting the, the Ten Commandments and, and all the commandments, because he was gone for 40 days and they had Aaron build the idol of the golden calf and they were marching around, they, they were thinking they were worshiping Yahweh. They said, this is the God, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. This is a sovereign festival to Yahweh. So they were saying the golden calf was Yahweh. And that is a violation of the second commandment. It wasn't that they were worshiping a different God, although they were worshiping a, God, a false God. Because ultimately when you worship, when you try to worship God in a false manner, you're worshiping a God of your own imagination. You're not worshiping the true God. But the focus of this was on the worship of God. So Spurgeon's Catechism, question 45, what is required in the second commandment? Answer, the second commandment requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his word. Question 46 of Spurgeon's Catechism. What is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. Oh, that's so important and that is so disregarded today. I've been in a, a long discussion on Facebook with some Christian friends over worship styles and worship music. I, I posted um, in Facebook uh, a discussion that they just did at G3 between Dr. Scott Annual and, and Virgil Walker about um, an article he wrote a year ago. I think I mentioned it yesterday, maybe or the day before or last week. But he wrote an article a year ago on why you should stop singing Hillsong Bethel and Elevation Music. And they were discussing that article a year later. And I posted that video. And, and Dr. Annual, Dr. Annual, I took his theology of worship class last summer. And it, it completely changed the way I look at worship. Um, it took me further down a road I was already on. I won't, I won't say it was something brand new. But it took me much deeper into the subject. And left a great impression on me. And I just want to point that out because it is so important that we understand that we are not to worship God in any other way than the ways that he is appointed in his word. Um, if, if we want our worship to be pleasing, that was one of the things that came up. So said, people worship God in all different kinds of ways and it, it's pleasing to God. And, and, my comment was, you say it's pleasing to God. How do you know? What does his word say? And it was never, never a reply to that question. Because the, you can't defend a lot of modern worship styles from Scripture. Um, one of the things that, 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 that Dr. Annual has pointed out in, in both his writings and in the class I took he points out that modern evangelical worship really is the confluence of two streams. One of them is, is 19th century Finney-esque revivalism, and the other is Pentecostal uh, Azuzuism worship with a heavy dose of late 60s, early 70s, Jesus music, Jesus movement, which was, a, which was when the, the modern pop music styles were introduced, Maranatha music, etc., out of the Calvary Chapel movement. And so the, this style of worship 
is very emotionally driven. You know, kind of like dancing around a golden calf. Um, it's very emotionally driven. It has very shallow theological content. And I'm not saying that every, I mean, there are some, some really good, you know, modern praise and music, praise and worship music content as far as, you know, deeper doctrinal stuff. Um, the stuff that comes out of Sovereign Grace music. I love it. And some of it, I think, is appropriate for use in worship. Um, and I wouldn't say it wasn't. And, and I would have no problem with it. Um, the problem is repeating, I want to get close to you, God, you know, for 45 minutes with drums and a backbeat. That's not deep. And somebody said, you want to get close to God, quit singing repetitive, meaningless songs and open your Bible. That's where you get closer to God. So we're not to worship God in any other way not appointed in his word. Very important. All right, switching over to the ACNA and their catechism, which was, which was actually written by J.I. Packer, and a new edition has been put out by the, the, the Anglican Church in North America. Um, now, you know, understand, I'm not Anglican. And there are doctrinal issues that I have with Anglicanism. One of them is going to come up in this commandment, and I'll point it out. But I'm going to go through their questions and answers because they are, for the most part, solid. But where I disagree, I'm going to point out. Question 275. What does the second commandment mean? Answer. God's people are neither to worship man-made images of God or of other gods, nor to make such images for the purpose of worshiping them. Exodus 20, 23, Exodus 34, 17, Leviticus 26, 1, Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 20, Deuteronomy 27, 15, Psalm 97, 6 through 9, Acts 17, 22 through 29, 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 18. Um, very important, same thing. We are not to worship God through images of God, nor are we to worship images of other gods, nor are we to make such images for the purpose of worship. Question 276. How did Israel break the first two commandments? Answer. Israel neglected God's law, worshipped the gods of the nations around them, and brought images of these gods, idols, into God's temple, thus corrupting his worship. Exodus 32, Judges 10.6, 1 Kings 12.28-33, 2 Kings 21.1-9, Psalm 106.19-43, Hosea 13.2, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14. Question 277. Why did the nations make such images? Israel's neighbors worshipped and served false gods by means of idols, believing they could manipulate these counterfeit gods for their own benefit. Psalm 115, 2 through 8. Isaiah 44, 9 through 12. Jeremiah 10, 2 through 15. Habakkuk 2, 18 and 19, Revelation 2, 18 to 29. Now, question 278 is where I have a slight quibble here. The question is, are all images wrong? And in general, I agree with here, but I have a specific quibble. The answer that the, that the catechism gives, the answer that, that J.I. Packer wrote was no. God forbade the making of idols and the worship of images, yet commanded carvings and pictures for the tabernacle depicting creation, which is absolutely true. There were, there were plants. There were, as, as somebody's pointed out, it was a garden scene. It was, it was kind of a, the, the, the tabernacle and later the temple, in a way, represented the Garden of Eden, the original pre-fall paradise with plants and with cherubim in there. 
And indeed, cherubim are guarding the the entrance to the Holy of Holies, just as God set cherub at the entrance to the garden after Adam and Eve were expelled so that they could not come back in. So there are, you know, carvings and pictures in the tabernacle and in the temple, which were perfectly acceptable. This is where I quibble. Packer writes, Christians are free to make images, including images of Jesus and the saints, as long as they do not worship them or use them superstitiously. And here is my quibble. I do not believe that we should make images of Christ. And I, I do not believe that we should have, uh, you know, films like The Chosen, you know, TV shows like The Chosen, films like The, uh, the Passion of the Christ. And I've talked about that at length. And, but let me just quickly give you the reason here. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you see an image of Christ and it makes you think about your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, how can you not in your heart come to an attitude of worship? So that's one. It's, it's, I believe it's impossible for a Christian to see an image of Christ without having a strong inclination to worship. And I think that's part of the fact that, as Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We have a tendency to worship idols. And therefore, we need to, in cases like this, images of Christ should be uh, forsworn. The other thing is that there is no depiction of Christ which can do him justice. No sinful actor can accurately portray the sinless Christ. No sinful painter can accurately paint the sinless Christ. No sinless sculptor can accurately sculpt the sinless Christ. And that's just fact. And so any image of Christ we make is a misrepresentation, whether it's you know, film, paint, statuary. It's going to be a misrepresentation. Um, and also, we don't know what he looked like. So, no image of Christ is an image of Christ. <laughs> the, no image of Christ is even going to be an accurate portrayal of his physical form because we don't know what he looked like. Yeah, it's like we don't know what Moses looked like. And in my mind, Moses looks like Charlton Heston. Right? These images shape our thoughts. Well, we don't need images of Christ shaping our thoughts. That is idolatry. So that is where I take a quibble with the Anglican, our Anglican brothers and sisters. Now, that having been said, you know, I do believe that the ACNA is the Bible-believing Christians, and I have many brothers who are in the ACNA, and I pray regularly for the ACNA and for the Anglican Global South and for GAFCON as they stand against the liberal drift of the Church of England and the Church of Canada and the Episcopal Church in the United States and other Anglican bodies that are oh, you know, have become liberal and moved away from the gospel. Unbelieving. Liberal is a bad word to use for theology. They're unbelieving. That's what we need to start calling them. The, the unbelieving Anglicans, but I do greatly appreciate the believing Anglicans. And like I say, the, the Church of England and the English Reformation is at the very root of English-speaking Baptists, the American Baptist movement. And, and we didn't come out of the Continental Anabaptists. And don't believe 
any weird trail of tears thing that says that modern Baptists have a direct line back to the early church. That's not true at all. Um, we came out of the Reformation, specifically out of the English Reformation, which means the Church of England and the Book of Common Prayer and Latimer and Ridley and, and Thomas Cranmer and all of these guys, they, they are, we are in the, the line of descent from these great men. And so I, you know, this is why I, I like Anglican sources. I use Anglican resources, um, but I don't always agree with them. And here is one of those places where I disagree. Also, I think before the, there was a period of time when uh, the making of images would not be acceptable in the Anglican church either. Um, there was, I think it was called the Cambridge Movement, and I believe it was the late 1800s. I'd have to, I'd have to look. It's been a while since I've read on the subject. But there was a re-Catholicization of the Anglican church that took place in, I believe, the late 1800s. Yeah. And I'd have to go back and look at it. But it came out of Cambridge University, and it was when a lot of the quote-unquote high church elements got added back into the Church of England. The bells and smells, as we say. All right. Um, did I give the scriptural references there? Let me give the scriptural references Exodus 37, 1 through 9, Numbers 21, 4 through 9, 1 Kings 6, 23 through 25, 1 Kings 7, 23 through 26, and John 3, 9 through 15. Okay, question 279. Are idols always images? No. Anything can become an idol if I look to it for salvation from my sin or comfort amid my circumstances. If I place my ultimate hope in anything but God, it is an idol. Very true. Uh, again, Calvin, our hearts are idol factories. We create idols daily, really. The scripture references here are 1 Samuel 15, 23, Ezekiel 14, 3 through 5, Ephesians 5, 5, and Colossians 3, 5. Question number 280. What does the second commandment teach you about hope? It teaches me that my ultimate hope is in God alone, for he alone is God and he made me. I must not look for salvation and fulfillment in myself, another person, my wealth, or occupation, or status, or any created thing. Only in God will I find perfect love and fulfillment. Psalm 62, Isaiah 45, 20 through 25, Matthew 6, 19 through 24, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. And then question 281, how was Jesus tempted to break the first two commandments? Satan tempted Jesus to bow down and worship him, promising him an earthly kingdom without the pain of the cross. Instead, Jesus served and worshiped God faithfully and perfectly all his life and calls us to do the same. We've been looking at this in our uh, MacArthur readings from Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. This is exactly what, what we've been talking about for several weeks now. The scriptural references here are Matthew 4, 1 through 11, Matthew 16, 24, Luke 22, 41 through 44, and Philippians 2, 8. Final question on the second commandment. How will idolatry affect you? If I worship and serve idols, I will become like them, empty and alienated from God, who alone can make me whole. Psalm 115, 4 through 8, Jeremiah 2, 11 through 19, Jonah 2, 7 through 9, and Romans 1, 18 through 25. So worshiping and serving idols makes us like idols and makes us empty and alienated from God who alone is to be worshiped and who alone can make us whole. All right, the third commandment, 
verse 11 of chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. We read, You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Spurgeon's Catechism, question 48. What is required in the third commandment? The answer, the third commandment requires the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. And how does the ACNA answer this? Question 282. Why is God's name sacred? Answer. God's name reveals who he is, his nature, his character, his power, and his purpose. All forms of God's name are holy. Exodus 3, 1 through 15. Exodus 34, 5 through 7. Psalm 8. Psalm 54, 1. Psalm 79, 9. Isaiah 57, 15. And Luke 1, 46 through 49. God's name represents him. And we are not to misuse God's name. Which brings us to question 285. What does it mean to take God's name in vain? Vain means empty, meaningless, and of no account. To take God's name in vain is to treat it as such. To treat it as empty, meaningless, and of no importance. Leviticus 24, 10 through 16. Romans 2, 23 through 24. Question 286. How can you avoid taking God's name in vain? Because I love him, I should use God's name with reverence, not carelessly or profanely. This is why I am much more upset when I hear someone use the name of Jesus as a swear word than I am when they drop an F-bomb. I'd rather hear the F-bomb all day long than hear people using the name of my God as a profanity or a curse. That's just fact. I mean, and, and I don't really enjoy hearing the F-bomb. But I'd rather hear that than hear the name of Christ taken as a swear word. So, because I love him, I should use God's name with reverence, not carelessly or profanely. You know, sometimes you have to think about that, just some of the jokes we tell. You know, maybe, maybe, I mean, I, I firmly believe God has a sense of humor. Um, the, the platypus is evidence enough to me for that. Just, Try to see a evolutionist explain the platypus. I, I always tell them, oh, you mean ducks evolved from beavers? And just drives them nuts. Because they can't explain it. You have a duck-billed poisonous beaver. <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> All right. Um, the scriptural references here are Deuteronomy. I'm trying, trying not to laugh. Deuteronomy 28, five through, 58 through 59. Psalm 86, 11 through 12, Psalm 99, 1 through 5, and Revelation 15, 2 through 4. Question 287. How might you use God's name profanely? By the unholy use of God's holy name, especially through perjury, blasphemy, and attributing to God any falsehood, heresy, or evil deed as if he had authorized or approved them. The unholy use of God's name, you know, when you're lying and you say, I swear to God, <laughs> guess what? That would be perjury. You know, blasphemy it would be using the name of God as a swear, rude, a swear word. <clears throat> lying in the name of God, saying God said something he didn't say, or saying God didn't say something he did say. Heresy, denying who God is. D trying to do evil deeds in the name of God. You know, think about the Inquisition and the torturing of, of you know, mostly Protestants. They said they were torturing heretics, but many of the people that were tortured were tortured for being Protestant. Even before the, the Protestant Reformation, I mean, you had 
You had people that believed the true gospel and believed the scripture, and they were tortured for it by the Roman Catholic Church. Think of men like Jan Hus burned to death for preaching the true gospel from the scriptures. The burning of him was an evil act done in God's name. That's taking God's name in vain. Okay. Scriptural references here are Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22, Proverbs 30, 7 through 9, Jeremiah 34, 15 through 16, Ezekiel 36, 16 through 23, Amos 2, 6 and 7, Jude 5 through 13. There was only one chapter in Jude, so Jude 5 through 13. Question 288. How might you use God's name carelessly? Cursing, magic, uh, and, and magic, the, 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 the thought that um, by invoking God's name, you're guaranteeing something. Um, at the Strange Fire Conference, Conrad Mbiwi did an excellent sermon on In Jesus' Name. And he was pointing out how in many circles, especially the, the health and wealth, name it and claim it type circles, invoking In Jesus' Name is seen as almost a, a, a magical mantra. And so that's the sort of thing that's, that's condemned here. Broken vows. Making a vow and breaking it. That is using God's name carelessly. False piety. Um, pretending to be religious and not being. You know, presenting yourself as other than you are. Manipulation of others. That's also a, a, something that needs to be thought of to manipulate people put that on do not disturb so we don't have my phone going off again those are things that that you know that we use religion to manipulate people does that happen <laughs> every time i get a message from a quote unquote orphanage in kenya where they are trying to appeal to my faith in christ to send money to people I have no clue who are. And you get those messages too. That's manipulation. That's using God's name in vain. Because, I mean, I, I, I swear, it seems like every, every friend request I get from, from Kenya and, and from other areas of the world are you know, from guys who run an orphanage who are in great need and they need your help. And they have pictures of starving kids and all of that. And you wonder, is it real? That's, that's why I give through recognized mission agencies. Or I give to people I actually know. You know, I, I, that's a, so that's a different thing. No. And hypocrisy. All cheapen God's name. These treat God's name as empty of the reality for which it stands. And that's Leviticus 5, 40, or 4 through 6. Leviticus 12, 26 through, 26b. <laughs> Leviticus 12, 31. Psalm 10, 2 through 7. Malachi 1, 6 through 14. Matthew 5, 33 through 37. James 3, 5 through 12. And Article 39 of the Articles of Religion. Now, since most of us don't know the Articles of Religion, and it's actually something that uh, uh, I'm kind of thinking about doing the 39 Articles of the Church of England um, after we do the 1689. Just to, It's a much shorter statement of faith, and it is a historical statement of faith, and it is one that that really underlined the Westminster, which underlines the 1689. And, and I thought it would be, I actually have a copy of the 42 articles, 
because when Thomas Cranmer originally wrote it, he wrote 42 articles. Um, and in 1552, the 42 articles were adopted. Then you had the reign of Mary Tudor and the outlawing of all things Protestant and the burning of Cranmer and uh, Ridley and Latimer and 300 and some odd or other Protestants in England by Bloody Mary. Um, when Queen Elizabeth I became queen and she reestablished the Church of England and the Book of Common Prayer and Protestantism in England, the 42 articles were reduced to, tw to 29. So I'm thinking about going through the 42 articles, talking about the three that were dropped and why and all of that. Um, that'll be an interesting discussion. But most non-Anglicans are not familiar with the 39 articles. And so I did go and get Article 39 just to, to uh, point this out. Article 39 is of a Christian man's oath. It says, As we confess that vain and rash swearing is forbidden Christian men by our Lord Jesus Christ and James his apostle, so we judge that Christian religion doth not prohibit, but that a man may swear when the magistrate requireth in a cause of faith and charity, so it be done according to the prophet's teaching, Injustice, judgment, and truth. So what are what are they saying there? That you know, Jesus said, "Let your yes be yes and your no be no be no," and he was talking about all sorts of vain swearing that the uh, the Pharisees had codified in there. You know, he's talking about you know you swear by the altar. It's it's you can't swear by the altar and break it, but if you swear by something that's on the altar you can break the promise. They had a whole, it was a weird belief system. And so Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't be swearing elaborate oaths. And, and James echoes that in, in his book. But this doesn't, this wasn't a prohibition against all oaths. When you're enlisting in the military, you take an oath. So help me God. When you are testifying in court, you take, a, take an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. These are not vain, empty oaths if you mean them and strive to keep them. When you take a political office, you, know, you swear to uphold the duties of your office, so help you God. Um... And yes, I know that the so help you God thing is uh, dropped quite often these days because way too many office holders and jury members and witnesses in trials don't believe in God anyway, um, or at least don't want to admit to belief in God and certainly don't want to stand before him for judgment. Um, but what... Article 39 is saying is that, that there, are, there is a place for oaths. You know, wedding vows are an oath before God. Perfectly reasonable to do. Nothing wrong with that at all. What's wrong is breaking them. So this is, you know, I just wanted to bring Article 39 in because it's actually referred to in the scriptural proofs of that. It's not scripture, but it's referred to in the in the proofs for that uh, that question. That brings us to question two eighty nine. How can you honor and love God's name? I honor and love God's name, in which I was baptized, by keeping my vows and promises, by worshiping Him in truth and holiness and by invoking his name reverently and responsibly. Numbers 32, verse 2, Deuteronomy 10, 20 through 22, Psalm 105, 1 through 5, Matthew 15, 10 through 20, and James 5, 12. So that is the first three commandments. 
Tomorrow we're going to be looking at commandment four, and that is probably going to take our whole session because we are going to dive deep into commandment four. And hopefully after tomorrow, you'll understand why I want to do a deep dive into commandment four. All right, well, let us end with reciting our fate, our faith from the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the colic for grace. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance to do always that is righteous in thy sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, folks, that's Squirrel Chatter for today. Have a great Tuesday. Remember, please, to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here tomorrow for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.